I don't know about you, but I struggle with envy. Uh, You might if I describe some of this to you. Most people do not kind of list that as their, uh, their struggle. But maybe, maybe as I describe this, some of us have yard envy, okay? If you live in a subdivision or a nice, uh, and you live next to somebody who has a little bit more money, a little bit more time, or a little bit more attention, and you look at their landscaping and you look at your landscaping. Uh, you look at their edging and you look at your edging and you get yard envy. Uh, you look at your dandelions growing and it's not the flowers that you're wanting to grow. Uh, and, and they're growing, uh, beautiful flowers. Um, I always like to take those little dandelion, little, all the little seeds and just blow them on those yards and just pray that they take root. Yard envy, home envy. You could look at their house, look at your house. You kind of get that kind of feel. Title envy. Uh, I, I, I'm not the rank I want to be. I'm not, I don't have the title that I want to have. Uh, they have it. That person in front of me has it and I want what they have. And so we can deal with that. Now here's a darker one. Okay. And I know nobody laugh or chuckle or raise your hand on this one. You might even have spouse envy. Hmm. Spouse envy. You look at how he treats her or she treats him and, and you look at that and say, man, I wish my spouse would do that and love me like that. And so this is real. I mean, as much as I can joke about yard envy, there can be a spouse envy. When you look over there and you think, oh, if I could only, you can have kin envy. You take your little rugrat to another little rugrat's house and your rugrat tears up their house and their kids are so peaceful. And you go, why can't you act like those other kids? Why can't you make the grades like them? Why can't you get on the teams with them? You kind of have that kind of kid envy. Again, parents, don't raise your hands or anything. Admit that. We just know that it's there. You have Instagram envy, okay? My selfies don't look as good as their selfies. Uh, I don't go to the places that they go to. I don't get to experience the things that they... So you kind of get this social media. In fact, narcissism is bred in social media. Okay? You are... If you're on social media in any form or fashion, there is this thing that we are about, and it's called positioning. It's called It's called posturing. It's called image management. But what it does many times is it leads us to a false image, a fake self. And it's not the real self, all because we're envying another self over there. Uh, we wish we could have, we wish we could do, we wish we could be, we wish we could look and all that. We look at these people and we may not give them this label, but unconsciously we give them a label that they got it all together. You know, they don't, they don't have arguments in their home. You know, they, they don't... They don't stink when they sweat and, uh, they, they, they don't, you know, they, they clean up after themselves and we look at their life and they got it all together. It's, it's like, how can I get to the all together? And then you got the down and outs and the down and outs where you, you might feel like you are from time to time. But in reality, if we really take a step back, a lot of us in this room, especially across Northwest Arkansas, we got it all together. I mean, when you compare, and again, I'm not trying to get into the comparison game. That's why so much of this is that creates the envy. But the reality is, is that, that we face this, this struggle with envy that can come up on us. And, and I want us to, to move away from that because I want us to understand and this. Is, I've been in this people business, if you will, for 28 years doing what I've been doing, meeting with people, loving on people, in relationship with people, caring for people, walking with people through good and bad. And this is one thing I've learned. 
If I'm meeting with an executive, a CEO or something over here, or I'm meeting with somebody who's on the down and out, doesn't have a job, can't find a job, and anywhere on that spectrum, this is what I've learned about the altogethers, is that even in the altogethers, there's many times a part, a portion, or maybe the whole of their life is really just a house of cards. And it's really not all together. The persona is that they're all together. They give the appearance that they're all together. They, they act like they're all together, but in reality, they're not all together. And so we need to kind of erase this kind of, again, this image of that. I want you to take your Bibles. We find the, 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 the gospel of John. We'll be there in a little bit. I want you just to go ahead and find it now because we'll jump into it in a moment. And we've been talking about this idea of pursuing uh, a life that gives life. Uh, a, a real life of substance and significance that gives life of substance and significance away to others in figuring out how we can be a multiplier of life. And so I really want us to kind of think the next two weeks, in fact, all the month of September, we're going to just look at in this continuum of the people in our lives and world that look all together and the people in our lives that look on the down and out. And how can I be a part of their story to bring life to their story? Now think about that. They're the, uh, they're the all-togethers. They're, they're the ones who got that. that, that I mean, I'm not saying they're, 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 they're a train wreck, but they don't have it all together. Okay? Nobody has it all together. And then there's those over here that, you know, it's, it's clear that they don't have it all together. Maybe things are falling apart. Maybe financially. Maybe relationally. Maybe, maybe they never can't hold down that job. You know, there's, there's those, uh, they're more on the external and you can't miss it. It's very obvious. How is it? that we can give life to them. And I, I want to say this, you've always got to start with prayer. Now, this is not a message on prayer, but I just want to start with that. Because here's one of the things I've learned about life and about sharing, about, about sharing life with those who need to have life is that I need to talk to God about people before I talk to people about God. I've got to put them as a part of my, my conversation with God as I'm living out my life. And again, we've talked about this alive for five and how, who are you praying for for the next 12 months? And I love it that last week, I don't know how we managed this, but in the past couple of weeks or actually two weeks ago, we took this survey, phone survey and 900 people we've identified that for the next 12 months in our gatherings, in our, in our faith family at Grace Point, we're going to pray for 900 people. What a beautiful thing. We have 30-something lights on a light board out, out, out front that says live sin. And every one of those stand for a story, a life of somebody who their life has come alive in the past few months. And for them, it's very real. And they've got now a new life and they're on a new journey. I mean, everything's fixed. I mean, everything's perfect and everything's spotless. But they're on a journey to a life that is alive. And I'm praying and you're praying and I hope we'll all keep praying. I love how Wade shared last week just about how if we're going to live sent like Jesus, again, he had life and gave life away, then we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to, uh, live and love and, 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 and care and listen like Jesus does if we're going to live like Jesus. And I want us to say, say our live sent, uh, definition, if you will, out loud. I want you to just become a mantra in your mind. Okay. So let's say it together out loud to show our showing Jesus or show. And I can't even get it straight. Okay. Let's try over. Reboot. Okay. Showing and sharing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. It's really not supposed to be that difficult. 
And what we're going to see in the next two weeks, and actually of the next several weeks, is we're going to see where Jesus does just that. He shares himself in everyday conversations with literally everyday people on the continuum. We're going to be in chapter 3 this week, chapter 4 next week, but we're going to see a contrast that is literally the difference, literally the difference between night and day. Well, we're going to see at night, Nicodemus, we're going to call him Nick at night, he's going to come and he's going to meet with Jesus. But then we're going to see another story next week, starting next week, we're going to talk about a woman at the well and she doesn't even have a name. Nicodemus has a name. In fact, I want you to, here's a, here's a homework assignment for you as a family this next week. I want you to try to find, as you read through John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, as many comparison contrasts as you can possibly find between those two passages. I think when John was writing, he did the most incredible job of showing us how we are with everyday people in everyday conversations to share and show Jesus in these relationships, okay? How we are to do this. And he does it in such a, such a, again, a broad spectrum of continuum. You got Nick who has a name. You got a woman who doesn't have a name. You have a Jew. You have a half dog Samaritan. That's literally what the Jews would call the Samaritans. You have a Ivy League scholar who's a white collar kind of worker kind of guy. We'll talk about him a little bit later on. Nicodemus focusing on him today. But then you got this working woman who literally draws water all day long, even in the heat of the day. You had somebody with status. You had somebody with a reputation. Let that sink in. You had somebody who lived in the holy city of Jerusalem. You had somebody who lived on the wrong side of tracks of Samaria because nobody goes through Samaria. Nobody. You had somebody who was a member of a mainstream faith. You had somebody who's a member of a heretic cult. Those are just a few. And I've even thought this morning of a few more contrasting elements between the two. And so I want, that's your homework assignment to just look at this and notice the variances and the similarities, the way Jesus shares himself, shows himself in these basic everyday conversations. Uh, now let's focus this week on Nicodemus or we'll call him Nick. This is what this Nick Ademus or Nick is really an incredible individual that doesn't get a lot of play in scriptures. You only get a couple of times in the gospel of John and that's it. He's on and off the scene that quickly. But this is what Richard Phillips says about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was not a merely a man. He was quite a man. It's hard to pick a similar figure in our own time who combines political power with moral excellence And boy, is that not ever true to combine those two? I would just love to see somebody with those in our politics. And erudite scholarship, of which those two words have never been applied to Mike McDaniel. I don't even know what erudite means, but it means something pretty special, and he's a scholar. That's Nick for you. This guy had it all together. Why is an altogether person even need Jesus? And that's one of the hurdles that you face when you're sharing with people who are altogether. Is they really don't see that they really need Jesus. They think they've got it all together. They really don't need it. They've got their theology together, their life together. Their, their, but here's what I want us to understand. You know, what Jesus is going to unpack for us, or John in his, in his writings and Jesus' words are going to unpack for us, is that we've got to enter into this world. When we exit out, or even when we're in this room, we've got to enter into this life with two prep, presuppositions, if you will. One of those is that there are two kinds of people out there. Those who know Jesus and those who need to know Jesus. Now, that was not very profound. 
But if we could just literally look at every person in humanity and, and, and just say, you know what, that person needs to know Jesus or that I need to know Jesus or where am I in my relationship with Jesus or do I have Jesus? Then, okay, who do I know that doesn't have Jesus? And so we need to literally be thinking through that. Everyone in this world, nobody exempt, nobody who's all together or nobody who's falling apart, nobody but nobody is exempt from needing to know Jesus. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, probably shared the gospel with more people outside of Billy Graham than anybody else lived his life under this, under this filter. He saw everybody with an S or an L on their forehead. He trained himself to do that. He would just see that as everyone had an L on their forehead until he knew that they had an S. Lost is what L stood for. S is what saved stood for. And he literally would enter into a conversation with anybody and everybody that he would come in contact with, and he would just assume that that person was without Christ and needs to know Christ. That's how literal he took it. That we need to understand that if I know Jesus, there are people in this world that need to know Jesus. And Jesus, or John, in John's gospel, makes it abundantly clear in John chapter 3. Now let's go there. into the most famous verse in all the Bible. The most famous verse in all the Bible challenges us. Because here's the reality. You're going to live out your days and you're going to have day after day, conversation after conversation after conversation. And will you learn and will you train your eyes to live with a filter that everybody you come with either knows Jesus or doesn't know Jesus. And if the person doesn't know Jesus, they need to know Jesus. And if I know Jesus, then maybe I have the answers that they need to know. Think about it like that. Because you're going to have on average 27 conversations per day. 27 different conversations. How many of those will I be able to engage in a spiritual conversation? John chapter 3, this may motivate us a little bit more. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you memorize that verse as a child, raise your hand. We know that verse. That's the, that's the verse. That's the Tim Tebow verse. If you've never heard of that verse before, that's the verse that you see at football games and on banners and things like that. That's the verse right there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As far as I know, that's the very first verse that I ever memorized. It's a beautiful promise that God loved us, that the transcendent God of all earth and outer space actually comes into imminent relationship with us, into an imminent time and space, and has an intimate relationship with us. And he loved us that much that he gave his only son that if I believe in him, my life can be with him forever and never be separated from him. That's a beautiful message. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It doesn't end there. I wish it did. It would be great if it did. But a verse goes on. Verse 17 is a verse that many times we don't read. Verse 17 goes on and it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So those out there who may be saying, Hey, God would never send somebody to hell. That's exactly right. God doesn't send people to hell. He sends his son to save them from hell. He didn't send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did everything. God did everything. The Holy Spirit is doing everything possible, imaginable to get this message into our hearts and lives. However, verse 18 is a reality for many. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is an entire pause that needs to happen right there. And I need to ask myself this question. Am I a John 3.16 person? Or am I a John 3.18 person? Am I a John 3.16 person where I believed in Christ and Christ has forever changed my life? Or am I a John 3.18 person I have not believed? And if I've not believed in it, it's already sealed upon my life. It's already a reality within my life. I am born this way and I will live and I will die this way. I will die condemned. You know, wait, 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 wait. Jesus doesn't do that. Remember, Jesus did. He, 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 he came not to send us to hell. That's right. He did. He did everything he could do to make a way of salvation for us and for all humanity. But if we refuse to believe, we're condemned. We condemn ourselves. I tell people like this. If you can go through people praying through you for you, you can go through mom and dad taking you to church. You can go through Sunday school after Sunday school, teacher after teacher, Bible study after Bible study, Sunday sermon after Sunday sermon. But you, you can go through that and still say no to Jesus. God doesn't send us to hell. We send ourselves. We need to think deeply about the people in our world. Now, how is it that in this broken world that I can share my faith with the altogether people? Because this Nicodemus guy, let's go back to the beginning of the story. I wanted to show you the end of the story because that's kind of where the story ends after Nicodemus. He says, oh, by the way, God came that he might give us all life, eternal life. Okay, great, good. Uh, but by the way, if you don't believe, you're condemned, and you're condemned already, okay? It's not one of those things that's a future tense. It's happening right now. You're living in a condemned state. So let's go back, and let's say, how can we get out of this? How can I get out of this condemned state? Well, let's go back to the narrative in the very first verses of John chapter 3, verse 1. And I want to talk about how do we engage with people who are far from God, who have it all together, all right? And let's just Take lessons from Master Jesus in how to share Jesus with other people. So John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. Now notice the respect. Notice he came at night. Notice how odd that would be that he would have to come under the night to, to come to Jesus. Notice that he says, Rabbi. He gives him this uh, this. Uh, uh, this respectful term. And you, we always think of the Pharisees as always being against Jesus. Well, there were some inside the inner circle that were actually leaning towards Jesus while others were rising up against Jesus. And why do we know that there were more than just Nicodemus? Because he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. There's something very unique about you, Jesus. For no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How is it that we are to engage people who are all together? I'm going to give you rule number one. Create disequilibrium. Create disequilibrium. Again, 
here's one thing I've learned in my 28 years of being in ministry that nobody has it all together. As Irma Bombeck says, if you look across the, the fence and you see somebody's grass is greener than yours, it's probably because they're on a septic tank. So if you think about the people next door, if you think about the people that you envy, if you think about the bosses and the superiors, and you think about the people who seem to have it all together, I want you to back up and I want you to enter into that presupposition that they are either a child of God or they're not. And if they're not, they are uh, not all together. They are not all complete. They are living in this condemned state. There's an emptiness. There's a shallowness. There's a loneliness. I heard this past week. It's the second suicide I've heard in two weeks of gainfully employed middle management and above this one I heard last this past week from one of our church members was the CEO founder and CEO of a company who literally shot himself to death. I don't know all the story behind it, but it breaks my heart to know that there can be altogether people who really have so much going for them, but there's an emptiness on the inside. See, knowing Jesus is more than knowing about Jesus. Nicodemus came knowing about Jesus. You are from God. Nobody could do this unless you are from God. God is with you. He had all kinds of things that he had come to Jesus with in a declaration of his belief in Jesus. Okay? You are from God. God is with you. But he never declares him to be God. You gotta understand who Nicodemus is. He was a very wealthy man. We know he was wealthy because he brings a hundred pounds of his own money to the gravesite of Jesus to help in the embalming process or into the burial process of Jesus. Not embalming. They did not embalm. They actually, he brought a hundred pounds of his own materials and he was meeting the Marys there for the, the, the final burial process of Jesus. He brings his own. He was a very wealthy man. We also know that he was a Pharisee. Now that was no small task. The Pharisees had been in existence since about fifth century BC, dating back to the, to the time of Ezra. And there was a limited number of Pharisees at any given time. Only 6,000 Pharisees. Think about that for a moment. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews, but only a select few rose to the top to become a Pharisee. Only 6,000 at one time. And he was one of them. But that was not enough. That was not all. He was also a part of the Sanhedrin. It says there in the passage that we just read that Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews... He was a Sanhedrin. Now, what's a Sanhedrin? A Sanhedrin was one of a 70 of the 6,000. Think about that. 6,000 Pharisees. He was one of the 70 that made up the governing body of the Jewish nation and the Jewish faith. This is a person that was in the top 1% of his class. This is a person who was quite wealthy. This is a person that when he spoke, people listened. This was an altogether person who comes to Jesus by night because he knows there's something unique about Jesus. Here's the thing that I want us to understand about this, about these people. Even though you may be in the top 1% of your class in this world, you still need Jesus. I still need Jesus. And I will do what I have to to seek him in the night, to seek truth in the night, to find answers whenever and wherever I can. And that's exactly what Nicodemus does. 
He comes declaring who Jesus is. You are from God. God is with you. But he never says you are God. Jesus turns to him. See, Nicodemus, Nick had a lot in his head, but he didn't have Jesus in his heart. He turns to him and he says, hey, by the way, he introduces a new concept. He brings a metaphor into the scene. Now, he's going to bring a different metaphor into next, uh, next week's message, and we'll talk about that next week. But this time, he brings in a phrase that is never used anywhere else in the Gospels. It's never used anywhere else in the New Testament outside of 1 Peter. It's this phrase called born again. And I think Nicodemus had heard it all. He had done it all. He had studied it all. He had experienced it all. He was educated in it all. Why in the world now all of a sudden Jesus turns things on his head and he says in verse chapter, in chapter uh, 3, verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was the disequilibrium moment, disequilibrium moment for Nicodemus. You mean I need more? You mean I haven't figured it out? You mean I don't have enough wealth? I don't have enough influence? I don't have enough power? I don't have enough knowledge? I don't, I don't live good enough? That there's still more out there that I need to have? That I need to be, what's this born again thing? He literally struggles with this born again phrase. He literally thinks that I've got to go back into my mother? Imagine that. My mother's this tall. I'm 6'3". How's that going to work? He literally thinks that. He's thinking very little, not abstract at all. He's very little thinking. He's saying, how can I get back into my life? No, no, no. You got to be born of the spirit. You got to be born of water. That's the physical birth. And then you got to be born of the spirit. That's a spiritual birth. So there's two births that have got to take place. And then he goes on to verse seven and he says it again. I tell you, you've got to be born again. There's a disequilibrium moment there where Nicodemus, who had everything packaged, had everything together, all of a sudden began to come apart. If he had just reached back a little bit further into his Old Testament studies, he would have remembered when Ezekiel said this, that God was going to give us a new heart and he was a new spirit. And I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give you. I, I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will give you a new heart. See, Nicodemus had Jesus in the head, but not Jesus in the heart. And a lot of people that's how they live out their faith. They come to church, they take Jesus in the head, but they don't take him to the heart. They keep this disconnect. Jesus never called us to religion. He called us to a relationship. A born-again relationship with the God of the universe. So in these conversations that you may have with these everyday people and everyday conversations... There will be, have to be a time, and it's going to be, create a discomfort for them because you know equilibrium is whenever you have balance. When you have disequilibrium, you have, you're out of balance. You're dizzy. You're, you can even be nauseous. You, can, you, you, you feel like you need to sit down. There has to be a time in a conversation with somebody where there's some disequilibrium, where they got to realize that things aren't all together. I don't have everything figured out. My life isn't a perfect story. Even though my five-year plan is being lived out, I still am empty on the inside. I still have some incompletion of my own soul. So then 
The second is, it's, is the way we engage people who are all together is we stir the soul to questions. If you'll notice when you read through the narrative of Nicodemus and Jesus that Nicodemus starts the conversation. That's sometimes how it works. He starts the conversation with a statement, but he ends the conversation with questions. He comes knowing everything. He leaves questioning everything. He comes thinking he has it all together. He has all the answers. He's just affirming who Jesus is. But he walks away thinking, I don't have all the answers. I need some answers questioned. I need some questions answered in my life. And I don't have everything figured out. The way we create disequilibrium is two primary ways is we ask questions and Jesus asked 130 questions in the gospels. Or we create disequilibrium. And whenever we do that, we start asking questions ourselves. When Job's life was rocked, what did he do? He said in Job 11 verse 8, can you find out the deep things of God? He began to question God. See, I don't have a problem when somebody starts questioning God. I don't have a problem when people start questioning life. I don't have a problem when people start questioning what, because it tells me this, that there's disequilibrium in their life. Their foundations have been shaken. And sometimes, listen, sometimes that comes through tragedies. Sometimes that comes through loss. Sometimes that comes through hard times. But that's okay. Because God can use those times to stir our souls to questions. See, the measure of the depth of a person is not the the prose or the proverbs that he can spout off, but it's in the depth of his questions. And that's what you find with Nicodemus. Verse 9, he makes this statement. After he said, born again, you got to be born again. You got to be born again. You got to be born again. And he even explains it. It's not just born of water. It's born of spirit. But he says in verse nine, how can this be? That's literally the last words we hear from Nicodemus. He walks away from that moment, that encounter. And we don't know what happens after that. We don't exactly know. We have great speculation that later on he becomes a follower of Christ. Because again, he takes a, a hundred pounds worth of, uh, an, uh, uh, of, uh, of incense and oil and myrrh to the, to the graveside of Jesus. So it's, it's indications that maybe he becomes a believer. But in that moment, there's this tension. How can this be? How many times have you asked that question? How can this be? God, how can you allow this to happen? God, how can this be going on in my life? How can, that's a good time to be leaning in and asking the question, am I born again? Do I have a relationship with God? Is my foundation sure and secure? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great English preacher of old, said it like this, you may be rich altogether. You may be poor down and out but you must be born again. You may be intelligent and you may be educated and you may be talented, but it doesn't matter. You must and I must be born again. Why would I be born again? Why do I need that? Peter, the only other time born again phrases ever used in the New Testament is in Peter's writings. He caused us to be born again. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not only need you to raise your hands on this one. Anybody who doesn't have hope in their life, that's all the reason you need. Anybody who's living with an empty shell 
And you're wondering, do I need to really, I got my life together, everything's coming. There's a living hope. What is a living hope? It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. That means it's going to go with you. It's going to morph with you. It's going to change with you. It will compensate for you. It will be with you when you're in Northwest Arkansas. It will be with you when God moves you out of Northwest Arkansas. It will be with you constantly. It never leaves you. It's constantly with you. It's a part of you. You now have a living hope when you're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Yes, it is Jesus in the sweet by and by, but it is Jesus in the nasty now and now. It is Jesus here and it is Jesus there. It is hope here and it is hope there. It is hope in our life that we can live out forever. Listen, I want disequilibrium conversations. I want to disturb somebody to the soul. I can't do it. But I can be a part of that messenger and I can share and I can show Jesus in an everyday conversation with an everyday person like Nicodemus, a person who has it all together. And then number three, don't miss this one, anticipate the Spirit's blowing and wooing. Then Jesus goes on to talk about how if he uses, actually comes out of Numbers, Numbers 21. And he talks about how the serpent will be lifted up and the serpent will be lifted up. And he talks, he's really drawing a parallel. Again, talking to Nicodemus, trying to help Nicodemus understand who he is. He's the savior of the world. And if I'm going to be lifted up and, and you'll be healed. And if you look to me, if you don't look to me, you're not going to be healed. Again, Jesus is the answer. It's not just because it's a Sunday school answer. It's because it's the truth. But he says something right in the middle of verse 8. I mean, it's just almost like, where where are you going, Jesus? Chasing a rabbit here? Verse 8, right after he's talking about being born again, and the Spirit working and how the Spirit works, in verse 8, it says, And the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a beauty, mystical, spiritual, that is happening in this room right now. Listen, 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 listen. And I don't know who you are, but I believe in this room right now, the winds of the Spirit are blowing across some of your hearts. And you have known about Jesus but you don't know Jesus. You have religion, but you don't have a relationship. And the winds of His Spirit are blowing across you saying, you must be born again. And when you're out talking and having these everyday conversations with everyday people, guess what? The winds of the Spirit are blowing in those conversations. And you can walk away and the Spirit of God is there. I mean, when it happens, I'm not talking about something kind of crazy. You start jumping over, frothing at the mouth or anything like that. It is a heaviness, but it is a lifting. It is a burden, but it is freeing. It is grace, but it is truth. And you are encountering the Spirit of God. Where you are saying, hey, I, got, I realize listening to this message... I'm not born again. That's, that's, that's the freeing truth. But then there's the, oh, that means I've got to give my life to Jesus. That's the part that kind of, hmm, there's something involved here. 
I've got to believe. I don't want to live condemned any longer. Bill Bright probably led more people to Christ than anybody in our modern time. Um, ended up so much so as an individual. In our, in our time, he's gone to be with the Lord just recently, but he actually led a movement that was called Crew, Crusade for Christ on campuses, college campuses called Crew today. And has still to this day, even though he's passed away, Crew is still going strong. And it's all about leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what they do. It's a beautiful, powerful ministry. But even he said, in all of his times of leading people to faith in Christ, he said, you share the gospel, but then you let the Spirit of God do the work. You do what you do and let the Spirit do what he does. You can't, you can't, you can't convert them. You can't persuade them. You, you share. You give your life. Here's, here's some bees for you if you just want to put your hands around something. Be alive. Number one, if you're not alive, you got to get alive. You can't give what you don't have. You can't sell what you don't possess. You can't, you can't pass on what you, don't, what you don't have in your own soul. If you're not alive today, come alive today. Be born again today. We're going to have prayer partners in a few moments. They're going to be all around the room and you can go to any of them and just say, I want to be born again today. Would you pray with me? I'm ready to give my life to him. And then be fully present in your everyday 27 different conversations that you're going to have in the matter of tomorrow. Be fully present. Get off your app and be fully present. <laughs> Think about it. Be fully engaged. Be fully engaged to where you're looking at them as a spiritual being with an eternal existence. And you have to ask, are you a John 3.16 person or are you a John 3.18 person? God forbid that you would let a John 3.18 person just go on living without giving them the opportunity it changes us. Have you ever been blindsided by God? When that spirit begins to blow, as I believe he's doing today, you're kind of being blindsided because you didn't come in here thinking about this at all. <laughs> I remember the, 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 the day at eight years old, whenever I gave my life to following Christ, I was blindsided by God. I did not anticipate it. I was the snotty little kid in the Sunday school class. I was the obnoxious kid sitting in church who squirmed around and ate snacks all the time during church. But on that day, God made his way in a little country church on the east side of Rogers, down my aisle where I was sitting. His spirit touched my spirit and said, you need me. You need to be born again. And on that day, I ran back to the back and I talked to Pastor Johnny and I said, I need Jesus. I didn't even know what to say. I, but I said, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. I need something. And I was an eight-year-old kid. But his spirit blew across my heart and blindsided me. It's blowing across some of your hearts today. It's blowing across some of your hearts who you've been a follower of Christ for a lot of years. And you've had a lot of conversations, but you've never had God conversations with people. And he's blowing across your heart right now saying, you need to be intentional this week with sharing me with them, whoever them is. Father, we pray that if there's anybody in this room that needs to know Jesus, not know about him, but know him, I pray that, Lord, you would help give us the boldness, 
to step out and give ourselves to you and to experience the amazing grace of God. Be with us in these moments.